Good morning, everyone. Good to see you. I'm glad you're here. I am going to show you um, some pictures that may make you uncomfortable. They may cause some sort of reaction, like emotional reaction. Uh, and so, so just, just warning, if you need to cover your eyes, I totally understand. This will, this will make sense in, in a second. How many of you uh, would look at something like this and you're just like, how can people live with themselves when they open... When they open the bag upside down, you just, you just can't do it. Like you just, you, you want to staple that bottom back up and rip open the top. Now, full disclosure, I am the type of person that would do this and make everybody else mad because I'm not paying very close attention, but it just, it just is a little, un, a little unsettling. Go to the next slide, would you? How about this? Does this bother anybody? Just like, just, you just want to reach in that picture and just move that M&M. If you're listening to this on, uh, on the podcast, you're going to have no clue what we're talking about, so fast forward. Uh, how about this one, this next one? Come on. Yes, you had one job. Come on. What, what does the state pay you for if not to line that up? Now, I saved the worst image for last because I think this is the one that's going to trigger most of you here. If you go to that last slide. It'll take just a second to kind of see what's going on, but, uh, but it's a cake that's clearly marked where you should slice it, and someone is just, just doing whatever they want, just going whatever direction they want with this cake. Now, some of you are averting your eyes. You just can't, you just can't look, because honestly, there are some things about this that, that kind of like, they, they do actually bring up some sort of reaction. You're just like, I can't. I can't do it. I have been more than one time on well, quite a few occasions. Anytime I've tried to cut a cake, I have been brushed aside. I've been pushed aside, cast aside like my feelings don't matter and told I was doing it wrong because I do this kind of stuff. Because people need things to be kind of orderly and, and just laid out the way that they're supposed to be laid out. Now, I show you these pictures to kind of get you in a little bit of a mindset because I want to give you a series of words. These are common, ordinary, mundane words, but I want to see if they generate any sort of reaction in you uh, along these same lines. The first one is this, over-busy. And I don't, I don't put busyness, but I put over-busy. If, if any of you have felt like your, your plate is not just full, but it's, it's over-full. It feels like, and I, and I could be wrong, but it feels like the standard answer to, hey, how are you doing, is this. Good, just busy. Good, just busy. Like, that's the standard answer that, we're, that people are just, they're busy. The holidays are busy. And people will say, well, you know, you know, winter, it's just so busy. There's just so much going on. The holidays are so busy. There's just so much going on in the winter. And then spring, well, spring is busy because the weather's a little bit nicer. And it's just, it gets busy. And summer... Well, summer, man, summer is busy because you got to get all your vacationing and you got to get out to the cabin every weekend and you got to go to the lake. Summer is busy. And then fall, well, fall is just when everything ramps back up again. And it's just this spiral of busyness until we die, I guess. Ronald Rollheiser called it pathological busyness. And our culture encourages it. Our culture asks more of our time and energy and resources than we have the capability to give. Now, for some of you, maybe that's not the right word, and, and, and maybe this next word maybe more captures some of how you feel, just generally speaking. Maybe you feel not busy, but, but cluttered. 
Maybe it's not a stretch to feel like kind of life has piled up a little bit on you. And it's not that you have too much stuff. I don't mean that. I don't mean that one closet in your house or that one room in your house that's supposed to be an office, but it turned into a storage room. I don't mean that. What I mean is that just like there's, there, it just feels like there's too much stuff that's kind of out, of out of place. I'm doing all this activity, but where is it getting me? I'm driving really fast, and I just kind of hope I end up at the right destination. And it's, it's, it's a lot of maybe someday I'll take care of that, just a lot of bits and pieces of our lives, but it's not creating this big picture of purpose and meaning. I don't know if anybody can relate to that. And maybe neither of those words work. Maybe it's more like distracted. And I think whether or not you realize this is true, this is likely true for many of you, that we are just distracted. T.S. Eliot uh, wrote in, uh, in one of his poems that, that humans, American humans, are distracted from their distraction with distraction. It's a deep well of distraction. And you've experienced it. You've been on both the giving and receiving ends of it as you're on your phone. The statistics are just mind-boggling how much we're on our phones and how much time we spend just distracting ourselves. And maybe we're distracting ourselves from our lives feeling like they don't have a lot of significant purpose. Maybe we're distracting ourselves from the fact that life feels so busy and things are piling up. I don't know. Maybe, maybe that hits home. But, and maybe it's something slightly different, but I feel like it's, it's fair to say that at least for many of us, life or parts of life feel kind of like those out-of-place M&Ms where you just want to reach in and just make a couple tweaks so it feels, just feels right. It feels good. It feels smooth. Uh, Dallas Willard, a, a Christian author, spiritual author, called this the disordered life. The disordered life. That there's just like life just doesn't feel like it's going in the direction. And I know a lot of us have, have probably had moments where we're like, man, we, you know, we kind of pop up from the busyness or the clutter or the distraction. We're like, where is this getting me? Is this really what I want? Is this really what it's all about? So into that, kind of if you can relate to that, and this is absolutely true of all of life, including spirituality, including our discipleship, including our walk of faith. But into all of that, if that, any of that kind of lands for you or you can relate to that, come these words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. There's some adjectives in that verse that really sound appealing, that rest and that light. I like that a lot. This is easy. This sounds good. I would like that if someone could come along and just show me like this path through the distraction and through the clutter and through the busyness into what life is about and what the purpose of life is, I would love that. Come follow me, you who are weary and heavy laden. That, there's an appeal there. But he talks about these things like, like a yoke. Take my yoke upon you. Like, that's a, it's an interesting word. It's a little strange what exactly is going on there. Now, we didn't grow up, oh, I shouldn't say we, I didn't grow up in a society that did a lot with uh, farming, but some of you know exactly what a yoke is. A yoke is this tool that you put around a couple cows or a couple horses, and they make the, uh, the work that you can do more effective and more efficient. So you can, you can yoke a couple oxen together, and then you can do twice as much plowing. You can, you can pull twice as much grain to the farmer's market or whatever exactly people do. It doubles your cow power. That's basically what a yoke does. 
And Jesus comes along, and I want you to note the weird sort of juxtaposition of these words. Take my, 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 my tool of work on you so that your life will be easy and restful and light. What does that do? He's intentionally pointing out this contrast. Take my yoke upon you so that life can be easy and restful and light. It's very odd. It's a figure of speech. But it's not one that Jesus was making up. He wasn't just like, you know, he did this a lot, made up illustrations, made up stories. But this, isn't, this is something that the society around him kind of knew what this was, what was going on here. And so just for, just for a couple minutes, I want to talk about ancient Hebrew history, which I know you're so excited. I can see your bright, shining faces as I say that. Oh, oh this is great. But I want to talk about two rabbis in particular whose lives pre- just directly preceded Jesus's. These were, these were very influential rabbis. And here's a picture, artist's depiction of them, but they're, they're the rabbi Hillel and the rabbi Shammai. And these two guys were very influential in first century Hebrew thought. So into the world in which Jesus lived, these two guys had a lot of influence. They were kind of like, you know, these, these theologian philosophers that, that shaped a lot of people's thinking. However, they disagreed. They had a lot of arguments. And this is so fascinating because uh, the, the Hebrew historians have compiled like, uh, like articles of this, these disagreements. So they represent like two really broad schools of thought. And they disagreed about like everything. They disagreed about like, like, could you divorce and for what reasons? They disagreed on how to pray and when to pray and why to pray. They both agreed that you should pray after a meal, which makes sense, right? You decide whether or not you're grateful for it. But they weren't sure like exactly what you should pray about and when after the meal you should pray. And they got down into like the nitty gritty details. And I love it. I love reading this stuff. And my favorite argument, they had 316 arguments. That's how detailed these historians were. They recorded every single one of them. But my favorite argument of theirs was at weddings, there was this this tradition of singing a song to the bride. The crowd would get together and they would sing this song to the bride. And they would say to the bride that she is beautiful and she is graceful. That was one of the lines in the song. What well, sounds like a nice tradition. We should do that at our weddings today. She is beautiful and she is graceful. And Rabbi Hillel says you should always sing that song to the bride at the wedding. You should always say that she is beautiful and she is graceful. But Rabbi Shammai says, no, 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 no. You need to call him like you see him. Because if she is not beautiful... And she is not graceful. You're lying. And so he said, you don't need to tell some poor bride that she's beautiful and graceful when she's not. What you do is you substitute a new line in that song. Can you imagine you're the bride and it's your wedding day and you're there waiting to hear the song. And you're like, I don't know. What do people think of me? Well, this is going to tell you what people think of you. Because if in that moment, in that line, they insert something like she is really good at cooking. She, is, she has a really good personality. You'd be like, uh-oh, <laughs> that's bad news. 
And it's so interesting that they had this conflict about them. And Rabbi Hillel, his rationale was, you know what? Listen, beauty is the eye of the beholder. Grace is the eye of the beholder. These are subjective terms. And we can find something beautiful and graceful about any of these women. And Rabbi Shammai says, no, you need to tell the truth. And it would be very interesting, and I'm not going to do it here, but it would be interesting to see which of us in the room will, uh, yeah, yeah, I kind of agree with Hillel. I mean, it's this lady's wedding day, and she's, it's important. You need to make her feel special. And I'm very curious which of you would be like, no, I'm not telling any lies for anybody for any reason. It's also the single people in the room, maybe. This was a real argument that they had. A real argument. So, if collectively you agreed with the, with the Rabbi Shammai, it could be said, it was a well-known idiom, it was part of the vernacular, it could be said that you were taking up Rabbi Shammai's approach to life and law, you were taking up his approach and you were saying, I am siding with Rabbi Shammai and I am taking his yoke, meaning I am going to work and live the way that I think he is outlining in the law, his perspective, his view. And if you thought Rabbi Hillel was right, then you would say, I am going to, I'm going to take up his yoke. This is just Real quick for insiders, uh, Pharisees in the first century, which of the rabbis do you think that they sided with? Any, any guesses? Do you think that they were more hardcore or more like Hillel? Like, just tell women they're beautiful whether they are or not. They were totally of the house of Shammai. They had taken up the yoke of Shammai because they believed, don't lie ever. They were very hardcore, very strict. Um, it seems actually that some of what Jesus taught was very similar to what Rabbi Hillel taught. Anyway, that's deep, nerdy stuff. You don't care about that. But the point is, is that what Jesus is saying is he's saying, I want you to take up my way of life and living because my burden is light and there is rest for your souls. So people feeling like, man, life is hard. I don't get it. There's all these rules and regulations and it's supposed, isn't God supposed to love us and care about us and bless us, but it just feels like he's made life difficult. And into that, into that busyness and distraction and clutter walks Jesus and says, no, 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 take my yoke upon you. Now, this is important to note that he's not saying cast off the yoke. He's saying there is a way of life and purpose and work that is peaceful and restful and, and easy. Not because it's not hard, but because it's the way life was designed and intended to be lived. There's an author, commentator by the name of Michael Wilkins. And he, I would say he wrote the book on the Gospel of Matthew, but he wrote all the books. He wrote like 12 books on the Gospel of Matthew. And his, his point about the yoke, he says, uh, he says this specifically. Jesus' teaching equips us for living the way life was designed to be lived. It's like, I don't know if you are like me and you regularly use the wrong tools for the job. I don't have a flathead screwdriver. I guess this butter knife will have to do. Can't find a hammer. I'm going to have to use this rock. And you just don't get stuff done efficiently and well. But when you have the right tools for the job, it's not that you're not working, but work becomes productive and efficient. And life becomes something that feels good and feels purposeful and you enjoy what you're doing. And so Jesus, into this, this environment of people feeling, like us, by the way, feeling over busy, Feeling cluttered and feeling distracted, what Willard would call disordered, comes Jesus saying, take my way of life and law and find rest. I like that a lot. 
I love that. When I read that verse, it just there, it's, it's a, it gives me a sense of peace. Because it gives me an understanding that the way of Christ is the way that we were intended to live. And when life feels cluttered and disordered and, 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 uh, and distracted, it's not the way Christ created us to live. It's because we have got something out of place that needs to be put back into place. Now, Jesus is not saying something different than what has been said throughout Scripture. This is not new. Jesus isn't coming onto the scene saying, hey, life is about this and, and, and that's different than anything you've ever heard. If you read the entirety of the Old Testament, which I hope is some of your New Year's resolutions, but if you read the entirety of the Old Testament, you'll see this sentiment over and over and over again. For example... When Solomon, King Solomon, he built this grandiose temple as a place to worship God. I mean, it was ornate. It was beautiful. They had been working on it. It had actually been in the plans for, for a long time. But he was the one who finally got it done. And they, he called everybody in Israel together. I mean, everybody's so excited. This is a party. And he, he, gets, he gathers them all around. And he's like, all right, guys. We, we built this thing, and this is awesome, this is great. But what he doesn't say is, now we can really worship God because we have this cool new temple. This is what he says, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 61. Let your heart therefore be wholly devoted to the Lord our God, to walk in his statutes and to keep his commandments as at this day. What he's saying is, you know what you feel right now? You feel proud to be a follower of God. You're, you, you feel excited. You feel celebratory. This is what you need to have 24-7. Devotion to God. This is what your life needs to be about. This is how your life needs to be defined. This devotion to God. Taking up God's yoke. God's way of living. Later in the New Testament, Paul, after Jesus was writing to this group of people who he was worried were going to go off the rails. They were just confused and distracted and disordered, and it was causing all sorts of problems. And to these people, in 2 Corinthians 11.3, he writes, I'm afraid, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds will be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. And what they're saying is, aside from everything else, aside from all the holiday busyness, aside from all the New Year's resolutions you've made, aside from all the deadlines that you have, aside from all the recitals that you have to attend, aside from all the pressures that that you put on yourself, your family puts on you, and life puts on you, aside from all that, what your life needs to be about is pure and simple devotion to Christ. That's what it's all about. That's what it's ever always been about. Pure and simple devotion. Devotion. That's where we get the title for the series that we're in right now, the simplicity and purity of devotion. And what God is calling us back to is this life that we take up the yoke of Christ and we are pulling. Our life is designed to live the way God designed us to live it. Pure and simple devotion. Now, we're going to get into some challenging stuff here. But this is, this is important because as I was working on this, this sermon, I'm like, you know what? People get that they're supposed to be devoted to Christ. And I, I have this sense that as I say that, people are like, yeah, yeah, of course. I know I'm supposed to be devoted to Christ. Why do you think I come to church uh, most Sundays? Why do you think I occasionally read my Bible? Why do you think I listen to uh, Christian radio? I, I get that we're supposed to be devoted to Christ. But I don't think that we've actually challenged ourselves to the degree of devotion to which God calls us. I'm not sure that we've actually said this is what my life is about to the neglect of everything else. That I'm saying yes to God and no to many other things. 
I want to, um, I want, I want to read you something else that Jesus said, and I think it's going to be clarifying to this, this idea, but also challenging to us as believers. Matthew chapter 6, 24. No one can serve two masters. You know this verse. You've heard it before. No one can serve two masters. And again, he's speaking into a society that was built a little bit differently than ours. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be, there's our word, devoted to the one and despise the other. And then he says, you cannot serve both God and money. Whoa, okay, that sounds good. Now, this is, this is good because I'm not serving money, right? We can all, we're, nobody in this room is serving money. We just have a 2,000-square-foot house, but I know this family. They have a 6,000-square-foot house. They're serving money, but not me, right? We would let ourselves off the hook. But I want you to understand that's not, that's not fully his point here. Uh, this is a big deal. Um, money is just one example of this principle of two masters at work. It's just one example of it. No one can serve two masters is the principle, and no one can serve God and money is the application of that principle. It's just one application, though. You cannot be devoted to God and devoted to anything else. He is not saying it's hard to serve two masters. He's not saying, in an ideal world, all things being equal, you shouldn't try to serve two masters. He's not saying, you know, it's not really best practices to serve two masters. He's saying you cannot serve two masters. You cannot do it. If our lives are devoted to something other than God, then what does that mean about our devotion to God? Follow me here. I'm going uh, to give you a uh, generic illustration. And I realize from the outset, it's one of those illustrations as I start to give it. Some of you are going to be like, ah, I know where he's going. I'm going to tune out. Scroll on Facebook Marketplace maybe buy me something. Let's imagine that this circle represents all of life. Every part of your life. Every corner of your life. There's no corners in a circle, but let's say that this represents that. Every just angle, everything in your life. And so, so inside this circle is, is just everything. It's family, work, relationships, desire. It's all, all the wonderful things of life. It's when you got made fun of in the sixth grade and you still think about that now that you're 40. It's, it's, it's how you felt when you got engaged. It's, 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 all, it's things that you wish weren't there too. Fears and tragedies and things and experiences that have shaped you that you kind of wish uh, hadn't been a part of your experience. And of course, in here is, is God and faith and I mean, it's life. It's everything about our lives. It's all the different corners and pieces and elements that make up our our day. All right? And the question is, what is at the center of your life? What is at the center of your life? What is the master that's calling the shots here? What is at the very center of your life? What is the thing around which everything else orbits? What is giving meaning and identity to everything else in your life? Now, I'm not saying what should be at the center of your life. We know the answer. We're at church on a Sunday morning. We know what should be at the center of our lives. I'm saying if you're brutally honest with yourself, what is truly at the center? Because maybe the word master is not for you. That's a whole different thing. That's all like, why does the Bible talk about slaves and masters? I don't get that. Maybe the whole concept of master is not for you. So let's talk about what is calling the shots in your life. What is the thing, what is the the purpose, what is the meaning around which everything in your life is organized? And I know we know the right answer. 
But let me be a little cliche here. Let's talk about just just a couple things that cannot be at the center of our lives. And we know this. I'm not going to tell you anything you don't know. But I think we need to be reminded of some things. What cannot be at the center? You know this. Work cannot be at the center of your life. You know that. Work cannot be. Your career cannot be the thing around which the rest of your life is organized. It can't be. You know that. You know that it can't dictate the way you spend your time and money and treat your family. You know that. And it's hard not to because work places deadlines on you that family doesn't. And work asks things of you that family doesn't. And it's easy to allow this to kind of like at least creep into the center and at least be a little vice president in our lives, if not the actual center of our lives. But we know that. But if career or work is the sun around which our lives orbit, that means that that is the thing at the center of our lives. That means that that is the master of our lives and it means that God is not. You know what else can't be here? This is not going to win me any friends. Folks, this may be my last uh, sermon here after I say this. You know what can't be at the center? Your children. Your children can't be calling the shots in your life. And some of you are like, well, you, you don't understand. My children are everything to me. I want to give them the experiences that I didn't have. I want them to, to enjoy things that I didn't have. I want to give them the, the, the education and the opportunities that I didn't have. And, and, I, and I know, I know for all of us that right near the center for us is that our kids would have a relationship with God. And that's kind of important. But sometimes our kids, our children, are the dictators of our lives. And they are the thing around which our life orbits. I know we want... We want them to have a good relationship with God, but, but can, I, can I tell you something? And, and this is not because I'm a great parent, or this is just because this is what the Bible teaches. If you are interested in your children having Jesus at the center of their lives, then they need to see you having Jesus at the center of your life. If you're interested in that, if that's really truly what you want. Your children can't be the little emperors and dictators of your life. They cannot be the thing around which your life is organized. They can't. But some of you are like, well, you know, it's just the way it's going to be and we'll get through it. But you know what's going to happen? Then that means if your children are at the center of who you are and your identity and your life, then you know who is not? God. You cannot serve two masters, even if one of your masters is an elementary school kid. (laughs) You can't. You can't do it. I, um, I, let's cut to the chase. I, I like to beat around the bush, um, but I'm going to give that a break today. I, I, want, I want you to hear what I say as kindly and lovingly and as directly as I can say it. For too many of us, Jesus is not at the center of our lives. And we know it. We know it. We know we have organized our, thing, our lives around other things and other priorities and other purposes and other principles. And we know it. And we know he should be and we know he's not. He is not the sun around which our lives orbit. And as I say that, we automatically in this room, we begin to try to figure out, well, how do you gauge that? How do you measure that? And I do not want you to hear me say this in a cookie cutter, cliched way. I don't want you to hear me say, well, Patrick said, you know, I got to get my life centered around Christ, so I better put Christian radio on the number one preset in my car, so that will really prove it, or I better make sure I get through my 90-day devotional plan, or or, or, or I make sure I, I memorize the books of the Bible, or whatever. All good things, all good things, but 
What I'm asking for you is to be brutally honest with yourselves, and maybe even ask God to reveal this to you or a friend or a family member. Ask yourselves, what is at the center? And then ask yourselves, what do I need to move Christ back into the center of this, of this whole thing, that he is the being whose yoke I take up and around whom I organize my life. And I eliminate things that don't need to be there. And, and, I, and I pursue things that do need to be there that haven't been because my, or, my life has been organized around something else. I am not advocating for more activity, more burden. I'm not saying just rearrange the exterior without fixing what's at the center. But devoting ourselves to making sure it is Jesus who occupies that spot. Now, listen, I realize that if you're in here and you're kind of on the fence about God and Christianity and Jesus, I get that what I'm talking about is going to be like, mm, it's a little weird. But one of the reasons people are on the fence about God and Christianity and Jesus is because they say, see Christians for whom Jesus is not the center of their lives. And if we want to be a good example, if we want to be a light to our communities and our workplaces and our friends and our families and our neighbors, this needs to take center stage. It's, it's just there's nothing more important. There's nothing else that we could talk about that would be more important. And then once that happens, everything else begins to take order. Because I'm not saying that we just add a Jesus to-do list into this big circle of things that we've got to do. I'm saying that we organize our lives around this person. I want to finish by reading an excerpt from um, a book called A Testament of Devotion. I, I discovered it uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, it's written by a, uh, uh, well, you would eventually become a Harvard professor named uh, Thomas Kelly. And uh, before I read the quote, I want to just give you a little bit of background into the story um, because I think it's really relatable. He was someone who was pursuing his education. He was pursuing purpose through education. And, and I think a lot, many of us can relate to that. We can say, yeah, I will have meaning if I get this degree or advanced degree, or I will have meaning if, so fill in the blank. I will have meaning if. And he was pursuing his PhD, and he was presenting his oral thesis, and he bombed it horribly in front of this team of Harvard uh, professors that were reviewing it. And it just sent him into a spiral because his life had been organized around this idea of getting this degree and proving himself to his fellow professors or his family or who knows what. But this is the, the, the sun around which his life had orbited. And once that was gone, everything just began to fall apart. And he went into this, this deep depression. There's this uh, brief biography of him talking. His wife was worried about whether, whether he was going to be suicidal. I mean, his life fell apart, which is an important lesson because whatever we put in the center of our lives, if it's not Jesus, eventually it will go away in some form or another. It will go away, whether it's your career or whether it's your kids disappointing you or not reflecting well on you or whatever it is. It will go away in some form or another, and you will have to rebuild your life around something else. But as he, as he came out of this and as God began to change him and shape him, he wrote this. And this, this quote spoke to me, and so I wanted to wrap up this morning by sharing this with you. He says this. This is, a, this is a, an essay based on a speech he gave. He says, to you in this room who are seekers, to you, Young and old who have toiled all night and caught nothing. It's a reference to Peter after he had disappointed Christ and caught nothing. But who want to launch out into the deep. I want to speak as simply, as tenderly, as clearly as I can. For God can be found. There is a last rock for your souls. A resting place of absolute peace and joy and power and radiance and security. There is a divine center into which your life can slip. 
a new and absolute orientation in God, a center where you live with him and out of which you see all of life through new and radiant vision, tinged with new sorrows and pangs, new joys, unspeakable and full of glory. There is a way to take on the easy yoke of Christ. And, to have, and what he's saying is, because I know we hear that and we're like, oh, that sounds so hard. It sounds so difficult. You're saying I have to just restructure my whole life and I have to live like some super duper devoted Christian. But what Jesus is saying is the secret is, is that's the way life was intended to be lived. And when you do it, you're no longer hammering nails with a rock and you're no long, longer trying to screw in screws with a butter knife. You're doing life the way it was intended to be done. And it is a easy burden. It is a light yoke. It's the way we were intended and called by Christ to live. But it is about putting Christ at the center. Now, some of you are like, well, what does that mean? Give me a checklist. I don't know what it means for your life because I don't know exactly what is at the center of your life. And it's not a checklist. That's important too. But one of the things that we're going to do throughout the series is we're going to continue to explore what this means, what it means to move ourselves or our work or our children out of the center and what it means to move Christ into the center. We're going to explore that. So I, I encourage you to, to, to come back uh, next week and we're going to go just a little further in the deep end and we're going to talk about the way devotion actually works its way into the corners of our lives. We're going to talk about some words that may be challenging to us but words that will give us that sense of ease and lightness, that yoke that we were designed to carry because we were designed by Christ to live that way.